Hi, and welcome to Axel Bank Reports History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Dr. Benjamin Railton, the author of Of The I Sing, The Contested History of American Patriotism. This is his sixth book. He's a professor of American literature and studies at Fitchburg State University in Massachusetts. Thanks so much for being here, Dr. Railton. Thanks so much for having me, Evan. This is a great podcast, and I'm excited to be part of it. Well, I appreciate that. Before we start our interview, I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We do not accept contributions over $5, and any monthly amount we raise over $31, which is the exact cost to produce the show, is given to charity to promote literacy. So, uh, Dr. Railton, I'd like to begin with an exploration of terms. So before we get to how it's interpreted in America, what does the word patriotism mean to you? And what are the ways patriotism can be expressed? Well, that is the, the million dollar question, and I'm glad to start with it. Um, what it means to me is two layers. One is very straightforward, and then it's the second layer that gets at your second, and I think more important question, the, the how, the how it gets expressed, the how it gets acted upon. I think the, the first layer is, is straightforward to me. I think patriotism does mean a love of country, a love of one's country, a, a profound connection to this place and to which, which one is usually arbitrarily born or perhaps moved, but nonetheless, a profound feeling of attachment. And, and I think love is a good word for that place. Um, and, and I think that that should be agreed upon, but what can't be agreed upon and what is really the goal of this book to explore the different ways that, that it, it hasn't been is, is the follow-up question of how that love gets expressed, of how we act upon and, and share and, and, and create, construct individually and together what that, that love looks like. And there, I think, is where it immediately gets really tricky because there is a narrative, and I'm sure we'll talk more about it, that that, that love has to be absolute, um, that that love is not is is not about um, a nuance or criticism. It is it is central and absolute. Love it or leave it. That phrase that we can talk more about, um, and that's where I start to really disagree. That is one version um, of patriotism, but I think there are other ways to act upon it, including things like service and sacrifice, but also including critique and challenge to push that place one loves. And so, one I think, go ahead. Uh, one reason I love your book is that it explores so many of the things that are around us all the time, things that are deemed patriotic, the Star Spangled Banner, the words God Bless America, the American flag, uh, drinking a certain kind of beer, uh, wearing a hat that says Navy on it. Um, but it also explores things that have become controversial, including some of the things I just mentioned. And it also adds to that uh, kneeling for the national anthem, whether the word God should be in the Pledge of Allegiance saying Black Lives Matter, questioning whether a president's decision to go to war is the right one, right? Those are all things that um, patriots and people who um, uh, are criticizing those who say they're patriots um, have battled over as to how far you can go before it's, um, it's uh, too patriotic and, and sort of blind patriotism. And so uh, you say embedded in all of those things are four, uh, are four types of patriotism. And you use the song America the Beautiful to illustrate them. So what are the four types of patriotism? And can you give examples of, of each in the song that we know? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and 
that song is a really, it's four verses long. We usually only sing the first verse, much like the Star Spangled Banner. But if you look at the four, it does provide this really great parallel to these categories. The categories are my own, but the song represents them and, and demonstrates, I think, their presence. So the first one, and it's the one I just started to talk a little about, and you also were referencing it, Evan, as well, is what I call celebratory patriotism. And that's the expression of that love through uh, rituals, performances, celebrations of the nation, like standing for the anthem, um, for example, or the, uh, reciting the Pledge of Allegiance. And in the first verse of America the Beautiful, written by a Wellesley English professor, Catherine Lee Bates, after a train trip across the country in 1893, she expresses that celebration, particularly of the natural beauties of the, the spacious skies, the purple mountain majesties. And, and that's one example of a kind of an, an element that can be shared and celebrated by all, but the beauty of a place. So that's the first type, celebratory. Um, the second type is, is one that I, I link to celebratory because celebratory patriotism can be shared by everyone. There's no reason everyone can't potentially be a part of those celebrations. But what I argue in the book is that often that type celebratory has been linked to a sect, uh, what I call mythic, which is the creation and reinforcement of American myths, which very often exclude, leave particular people out of those celebrations, of those performances, of those definitions of the nation being celebrated. Um, and the second verse of the song has a really clear example of that when Bates writes about the kind of the Puritan founding moment in American history as she's defining it. Uh, that it included a pilgrim feet whose stern impassioned stress, a thoroughfare for freedom beat across the wilderness. And of course, it's true that the, the pilgrim voyage arrived in New England in 1620, but already that definition leaves out the native peoples who were here at that time and creates an image of that place that was a wilderness until those, those English uh, pilgrims came. And so that's a mythic patriotism that immediately from that, that definition on includes certain Americans and doesn't include other communities. Um, and that's that second type that I argue for. And so then in contrast to that, I argue for third and fourth types that I would call more challenges to some of those myths and ways in which all Americans can take part um, in, in patriotism and also challenge directly the more exclusionary type. The third category that I highlight I call active, which is the idea of, of service or sacrifice action on behalf of the nation. Um, and Bates writes about that powerfully in the third verse when she highlights the Civil War and particularly the service and sacrifice of the Union Army, Union soldiers during that war. And she writes, oh, beautiful for heroes proved in liberating strife, who more than self their country loved and mercy more than life. So highlighting that the sacrifices of Union soldiers, which of course included 180,000 African-American soldiers, among many, many others who served and sacrificed on behalf of that nation. And then the fourth and the most direct challenge category, the category that challenges most directly the mythic version and even the celebratory as well is critical patriotism, the idea of expressing critique of the nation in order to push it closer toward its ideals, that more truly um, perfect union. And in the fourth verse, Bates at least briefly alludes to that by writing, O beautiful for patriot dream that sees beyond the years, thine alabaster cities gleam undimmed by human I would argue the implication, at least there, is that there are reasons for tears in the present, which in 1893 there certainly were in a variety of ways, but she's imagining this future, this patriot dream of a more perfect union. And, and that's a brief example of a, of a critical perspective trying to push the nation toward that future and that idea of critical. So interesting because there are so many songs um, that 
make us feel good the first time we listen to it. But if we peel it back and maybe sing the rest of the song or think a little bit more critically, there's a lot more to think about than just um, high and fluffy feelings about your country. Absolutely. And, and I think one goal of this project of mine is, is to really take a look at, at, at many of those performances that I had mentioned and you had mentioned, many of those rituals, I'm not just say highlight uh, perhaps less well-known examples of active or critical patriotism, although that's part of my work, but also to, to, to re-examine the things we may take for granted. And America the Beautiful is a great example. I talk about the Star Spangled Banner in a, in a chapter, the Pledge of Allegiance in another, um, to name a few. And, and those are things that likewise contain these layers, as you're saying. They, they include often examples of, of these multiple types, or at least allow us to approach them, think about not just perhaps the most famous or prominent celebrations, but but what's inside them. Yeah, and so your book traces how all these forms of patriotism were formed. Um, you say the American Revolution originated and was sustained by expressions of celebratory patriotism. So let's go back to, to the beginning, to our roots here. Um, you say an American ideal had to be formed by people like Tom Paine and Ben Franklin. What was the ideal that they formed? It's a great question and obviously a very much debated one in our present moment. And I think that's a good thing. Um, we approach these histories both from the present and in conversation with, with other approaches. There's no one answer to it ever. Uh, but my answer, at least part of my answer would be that for men like Franklin and Payne um, and some of the other uh, framers who I talk about in that chapter, the emphasis was on two things. One, it was on a reaction to that. I mean, from a certain angle, they were traitors. They were traitors to a country that they currently belong to at that moment, but they wanted to frame it differently. They wanted to frame uh, England, that mother country, as as oppressive, as one that was keeping them from, from creating what they wanted to create, the community, the ideals here. And so I think that's one way that that patriotism, that those ideals get created is in opposition, is in saying, right now we are in a situation where we are not given freedom, the liberty, all those words that were so relevant, um, so present in that moment to self-create, to build the community and, and through it, the ideals and ideas that we want. So partly it was a it was a reaction and one that reframed what could be seen as reason, unpatriotic as instead American patriotism, this new type, this new, this new community and new ideals. And then within that, within what they were arguing for, I do think a central vision of it for, for those men was precisely the idea of exploring that concept of liberty, exploring that concept of, of the freedom to create this new place. And, and so you see in a really prominent text, um, uh, like DeCrevcourt's Letters from an American Farmer, written and published during the American Revolution, that vision that uh, he asks, who is, who is an American, this new man? He says, it is he, uh, using the language of the time, who throws off the old and creates a new identity in this new world. And, and the Kreft Corps tried to apply that to as many American communities as possible. He thought about enslaved peoples a little, he thought about native peoples a little bit in the 1780s way that he could. So it wasn't just say about the framers or European Americans, it was, this is a place where there is liberty to create something new, new identities, individual and collective, um, and then explore that community, that new community. So I do think liberty, while it can be overused and has to be contested as a concept, in that particular way, especially the freedom to envision this new place, this new possibility was a central part of what they were reacting to, the limits on that, and then trying to create on their own terms. You say those views um, were then turned into a myth 
of history by Phyllis Wheatley. She comes up frequently in the study of early America, but um, just explain really quickly who Phyllis Wheatley is and then explain how she cultivates the American myth and how do those who can benefit from that myth, the people in power, then harness what Phyllis Wheatley says? Yeah, it's a really complicated, important point because her identity includes these multiple layers. She's an enslaved African-American. She's brought to the to America, to the Boston area um, as, a, as a young girl um, enslaved, uh, kidnapped into slavery and sold to a Boston family. Um, she is also an incredibly talented poet, um, a really just a gifted sort of savant. She uh, learns to read and write and becomes one of the most interesting poetic voices in all of American history, again, at a very young age and while still at first in that um, a situation of being enslaved. Um, and when she writes about America, which she focuses on for much of her, her poetry and her tragically short life, she also writes about uh, Christianity, to which she converted or was converted when she came to America quite a bit. But America is a central topic. And when she writes about it, she does two things. And one that, that gets left behind sometimes by those powerful voices that you just noted is she tries to make clear why her experiences as an enslaved person help her to really see the value of that liberty, of that, that vision of America I just was talking about. She makes that case really powerfully, especially in a, a poem to the Earl of Dartmouth, a British uh, lord in charge of the colonies, about why her own experience of slavery makes her so passionate an advocate for American freedom. But the other thing that she does is she creates, as you just noted, these mythic visions of America as God's chosen country, this, this, this idealized place. She links that to General Washington, for example, in a poem in tribute to him early in the revolution. And it's that image, that image of America as this particularly favored chosen land that becomes sort of part of the myth in a way that very often then leaves out people like Wheatley, enslaved Americans, African-Americans, Native Americans, and many other communities. So on the one hand, she makes the case for that freedom because of her identity, very powerfully, but that myth can serve a, a much more exclusionary vision of patriotism, which only includes certain Americans. And that's, I believe, what happens a lot. And then, so how do the people, how, how do the people who are in power then seize her words and distribute them through the media of the day? So yeah, she sends that poem originally, uh, the one for George Washington specifically, for example, she mails that to him. Um, uh, she's an incredibly, impressively bold young woman, still very young at the time, just a teenager. And um, his headquarters are in Cambridge, not far from where she lives in Boston. And he puts that poem with a little prefatory note in the mail to General Washington so that he will uh, see this, this tribute and this work that she's created. Um, and Washington shares it with a friend of his, Reed, Joseph Reed, I believe his name is a fellow officer who's himself friends with, with Tom Paine, who we mentioned, a journalist and, and radical who is editing the Pennsylvania Magazine at the time. And Paine publishes that poem in his Pennsylvania Magazine in, in early 1776, um, um, struck by that embrace, that embrace of this American ideal, this new vision of this community and its and its ideals that Wheatley expresses. And from there, she becomes, I mean, she becomes a well-known compared to just about any other enslaved American of her day, um, but at the same time becomes, as, as you're putting it, part of that larger narrative in a way that can ultimately do some rhetorical violence and even at times, of course, some literal violence to the larger community that she's part of. Um, so America now is becoming a teenager. It suddenly has things to celebrate. Um, it's old enough to have a communion or a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah. Um, it, it has a, a bit of a photo album, so to speak. So how does the War of 1812 and the 50th anniversary of the revolution add fuel 
to patriotism? And what kind of patriotisms are being expressed at this point? Yeah, that moment, the earlier public moment, as it's often known, and particularly the first couple decades of the 19th century around the War of 1812 and, and into the 1820s, is such a pivotal moment, I think, in the question of not just what America would be, but what vision of America and thus what form of patriotism would take precedence. And I think it's important to never see these things as just inevitable or just just driven by the most powerful. There always were contests. There always were different possibilities. The War of 1812 itself is a great example, um, even just how that war gets framed. Um, and that's the war in which Francis Scott Key writes the Star-Spangled Banner while watching the bombardment of Baltimore Harbor on a 1814, over an 1814 night. And so that war itself is partly framed as a war of resistance, where the new United States is threatened by the English once more and have to resist and overcome to keep their new identity. And that's what Key really ultimately writes in that poem and song that becomes the Star-Spangled Banner. But at the same time, the War of 1812 is a war driven by American expansion um, into the Northwest, into Canada, um, in engagements with Native peoples, particularly in the Northwest, but also Southeast, where General Andrew Jackson has multiple military conflicts with Native peoples during that same war. And that narrative is one that, again, lends itself to exclusionary visions, the Indian removal policy that Jackson would institute about a decade and a half later when he becomes president. And so it's this pivot point, that war. And I do think that war, coupled with those 50th anniversary celebrations in the 1820s of things like the Boston Massacre and the Tea Party um, and, and then the revolution itself, do, I would argue, really turn the early republic into a period when the mythic, the exclusionary mythic patriotism is cemented through policies like Indian removal and through narratives of a particular vision of America, its wars, its revolution, its identity. But there's pushback. There's pushback from, from critical patriots, from active patriots in that moment. Um, and a great example of that is a guy I write about in that chapter, William Apes, or Apes, it's a Native American orator and minister and author who makes the case precisely for why, for example, Native American history is a central part of a patriotic vision of American history. He argues that King Philip, the Wampanoag chief from the 1600s, should be seen as a revolutionary American ancestor. So in that same moment, you do have voices still pushing for a more inclusive vision. But I think it is a moment through the war, through the anniversaries when the myths really become uh, very fully established. So what starts to happen then as memory of those events fade? Um, people die, people who were involved in the revolution start to die. Of course, Jefferson and, and Adams famously die on the same day. Um, what starts to happen then as those trying to mold patriotism take control of the memory of those events? Yeah, I think, I think what I would say most succinctly is that it's a great reminder of, of what I hope the whole book can be a reminder of, which is that when we're approaching history, as I said earlier in this conversation, we are approaching it both from the present and as part of a conversation in the present. And, and, and that doesn't mean we can't try to be accurate toward it or nuanced in the way we think about history, et cetera, but it does mean that there, we can't pretend that those influences don't, don't factor in and don't in some ways drive our perspectives and our conversations. And I think you really see that in, in the earlier public and in the buildup to the Civil War as well. Um, just as an example, the Confederacy very much um, in multiple documents and multiple moments harnesses the narratives of the revolution, memories of the revolution, ideals of the revolution, and arguments for their cause and arguments for their um, construction of a new American nation that they see as the heir to that, that uh, revolutionary and earlier public nation. And while we 
in the 21st century, um, I and, and many others would disagree with that. It's a reminder of how much that contest is happening, how much that, as you say, as generations pass, but even, even in their own moment to some degree, that contest over the definition and division um, is, is what is really unfolding in the present as we use the past to advance those different competing ideas. So then we get to the Civil War and like the Civil War is this constant ellipses in American history because it's the turning point. It's where everything changes. It's where this clash over slavery um, explodes and people die and the nation is redefined. And um, there are these at least glimmers of hope for certainly African-Americans as um, Reconstruction begins, at least. and you say that the Civil War tests all forms of American patriotism. How does the Union cultivate patriotism? And then how does the Confederacy cultivate patriotism? And did they do it differently or were the techniques the same? In what I examine, there is a difference. And this is somewhat of a reduction on my part. There would be ways to see this differently as with anything I'm, I'm saying here and in the book. But I, I believe there is a bit of a difference, which is that the Confederacy does so uh, very much in, in a top-down sort of official statements and documents expression of what I was talking about a second ago, the, 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 the parallels between the revolutionary, revolutionary America and this Confederate revolution. Um, and they, in their founding documents, their documents of secession, Alexander Stevens' cornerstone speech, um, among others, really in this sort of official statements of the, of the Confederate states, the Confederate leaders, the Confederate government, um, seek to make that overt case um, for what I would call a mythic patriotism, a mythic patriotic image of, of a white supremacist um, America that they see themselves as the heirs to. Now, Lincoln, President Lincoln, who is, of course, the most official representative of the Union of the, of the American nation, does advance celebratory and active patriotic images of his own. But my argument in that chapter is that we see really perhaps the most clear expressions of it on two other fronts from the Union, from Union supporters and voices. And one is poetry. Um, some really interesting uh, Civil War poetry by uh, prominent folks like Walt Whitman and Herman Melville. And then also, if we think of the Battle Hymn of the Republic as a poem, which I do, by Julia Ward Howe, the activist and author, um, it's in those kind of poetic and artistic works that I find really interesting celebrations of the Union cause um, by those different authors. And then I would also argue very much in service in the Civil War, the service of not just overall of those who serve the Union, but specifically groups like the United States Colored Troops, the African-American soldiers, or the nurses, um, who served so heroically, including African-American nurses and many others, and often write about their experiences. And, and, and of course, there are those who serve the Confederacy. But I think the service of those Union soldiers and nurses and other communities is framed by themselves very frequently as their active patriotic attempt to push the United States toward the vision that they see, the vision that they want to embody and argue for. So, so uh, go ahead. Well, so why has the memory of that war been harnessed by the South more so than the North? Um, We don't see Union flags being flown in New York. Um, We don't see Union flags being flown in the South, frankly. Um, But we do see Confederate flags being flown all over. Mm -hmm. Yes, I I, I see more here in Massachusetts than I do when I go home to Virginia, where I grew up. Um, Hmm. To me, and this is a very long, complicated thing that I'll try to just say briefly. Yeah, sure. I do think in the... In the aftermath of the war, in really the century after the war, 
the South and uh, the great Heather Cox Richardson and her new book, um, How the South Won the Civil War, makes this case in, in, in her ways, too. I think the South does win the battle for how that history gets defined for a long, long time and wins it in such a way that it both weds the Civil War to those exclusionary, mythic, often white supremacist visions of the whole nation, of the entire definition of America, um, and in a way that even changes the narratives of, of the Civil War and of slavery specifically, certainly of Reconstruction. But to me, the first point is the more important one. It's not just what has often been traced, the, the reframing of narratives of the South and the Civil War and Reconstruction, but it's a connection of that Southern vision to the exclusionary mythic form of patriotism. And I think in the Gilded Age, the late 19th century, and certainly into the early 20th as well, that's a huge process that, that happens on so many different fronts in American society. Um, and a great just individual example of it is the film Birth of a Nation. Just think about the title of that. Birth of a Nation is an overtly white supremacist film. It's based on Thomas Dixon's a trilogy of Klansman novels, which are pro-Ku Klux Klan novels. But it's titled Birth of a Nation. It's about the idea that the United States is, is sort of reborn in and after the Civil War in direct relationship to this white supremacist, exclusionary, mythic, patriotic vision. And so I think the South doesn't just win the battle on sort of individual historical fronts. I think for at least a century, the South connected its, the white supremacist South, the Confederate South, connected its cause to that exclusionary mythic patriotism in a way that, that made them inseparable and that we still see in a lot of ways unfolding today. One of the things that is really interesting, I think, um, is that after the Civil War, but before, well, maybe during also the Teddy Roosevelt years, there starts to be these nationwide celebrations of American ingenuity. Um, there's, as you write about, there's the um, centennial in 1876, and there start to be these um, sort of world's fairs that are happening and people come from all over to see American science at work and American ingenuity at work. And um, the industrial revolution is really taking hold and people start to be proud um, of America. So I would just ask how you sort of fit that all into the story that we're, we're, um, we're examining here. And if there's anything wrong with saying, look what we've achieved. And, and, and I would say, as often with, with these great and complicated questions, um, no, and then a follow-up, but. Uh, because <laughs> no, I don't think there's anything wrong with shared celebration. And, and I want to be clear in this project, and I hope that I am, that celebratory patriotism in and of itself to me is not, I mean, there are voices who would see that as always problematic or dangerous. I don't. I don't see it that way, necessarily. I believe there is real value in communal celebration. We have inventions, we've done things, we've created great sports and science and, and fighting disease and things like that. And those are things to beef up. They are, they are, because they, they can genuinely, first of all, they can be inclusive, they should be inclusive. Everyone can connect to them and be part of them, all Americans. Um, and they are examples of, of some of the best of us, of, of figures and histories and stories and communities. Who, who can represent some of what we most want to be as a, as a, as a we, as a nation. But the follow-up to that is that too often, as always, I argue with the celebratory form, it gets wedded to these exclusions. And they don't have to be there, I don't think, but they so frequently are. And in that Gilded Age era, a great example of that is, okay, so you have these advancements, these technological advancements, these industrial advancements, they bring with them um, as they always inevitably would, other sides, including poverty and inequality and, and, and social stratification. 
And instead of, for example, um, folding in and saying, okay, how do we make it so that there are less of those divisions and, and, and inequities make all these Americans more fully part of these advancements? What often happens, at least in the narrative, the celebratory narrative is the voices expressing those other sides get defined as unpatriotic, they get defined as traitors, they get defined as these foreign radicals, anarchists, radicals, communists, et cetera, who are seeking to undermine the United States rather than arguing for how all Americans should be more fully part of that. And so I, I see those voices as critical patriotism for that reason. A great example is at the Haymarket trial, the trial of the, the accused bombers in the Haymarket bombing of 1886. Um, one of those accused who's later executed um, for that bombing is, is August Spies, um, and, or Spies and he gives this wonderful impassioned final speech at the trial where he explicitly says, I am the heir of the constitution. Well, uh, what I argue for, the freedom of the press, these ideas, are, are, are deeply American. And those trying to silence me are the ones who are excluding this from America rather than me trying to undermine or destroy the United States. So I think the problem with the celebrations isn't themselves, but it's that so often they see anything that isn't just the celebration as fundamentally unpatriotic outside threatening to rather than an attempt to push more into and toward that full Version of America. And just real quick, the Chinese Exclusion Act happens during that time. And you're right, that's a, re- a direct result of this celebratory patriotism. It is, of the, yes, of the mythic version of it in particular. Um, and, and it's another very complicated history that I've written about in other projects too. But the short answer is um, immigration laws develop at all in the late 19th and early 20th century for the first time in the U.S. They develop to exclude entirely. That's what all the first immigration laws are are um, intended to do is exclude particular communities, beginning with Chinese arrivals very specifically and then broadening from there to many, many others by the time of the 1920s quota acts. And they exclude because of that vision, that white supremacist vision. And it's it's expressed by a variety of voices. One of the clearest is in support of the 1924 quota act, which becomes the law of the land for more than four decades. Um, a, a South Carolina Senator, Ellison Durant Smith, gives a speech on the Senate floor in support of that 1924 act where he says he, he argues for what he calls the white Anglo-Saxon heritage of, of America. And he says it is because of that heritage which characterizes us that I now would argue that we must shut the door. So it's a direct connection to that mythic vision, that mythic patriotic vision of America as characterized by a particular culture, a particular identity. Um, that is really behind, I would argue, behind the creation of those first exclusionary immigration laws. Hmm. When do people start to criticize presidents the way they do now, um, using their supposed lack of patriotism um, to criticize them? So, I mean, every president, certainly over the last, since I've been alive, um, has been accused of not being patriotic. When did that start? Um, Because, of course, there have been lots of, of criticisms of of all kinds of, of political figures, including presidents, since really the, the very first administrations in the 1700s. But that particular line of criticism, I think I think one interesting place to start to see it is, is in the early 20th century with uh, the Teddy Roosevelt administration. He's a really complicated figure uh, because he both embodies some of those myths of, of say, the West and, and rugged individualism, but he's also a reformer who weds himself to the the reformer kind of voices of the of the progressive movement. So he does get criticized as well as celebrated. He he sort of sees both sides, and he says specifically of um, advances a vision of patriotism himself that I think is in response to some of those questions. Um, this is after he's president in 1918. He 
he um, uh, writes an, an article for the Metropolitan Magazine where he writes that patriotism means to stand by the country. It does not mean to stand by the president or any other public official, save exactly to the degree in which he himself stands by the country. In either event, it is unpatriotic not to tell the truth, either about the president or anyone else. And so I think Roosevelt was responding there directly to those kinds of conversations and also to criticisms of his uh, not successor, Taft succeeds him, but the president at the time, Woodrow Wilson, um, in the 19-teens, who, who likewise is very much connected to these debates and who advances uh, with the Sedition and Espionage Acts attempts to kind of limit criticism very directly. But I think Roosevelt is really an interesting pivot point and turning point for both sides, the more celebratory narratives, but also the critical ones that he's at least partly um, advocating for in that moment. This starts to be, this starts to take on the, um, the idea of, at least I was reminded as I was reading your book, um, I started to hear the words, these colors don't run. Can mm-hmm. you draw TR's masculinity and the myth of masculinity to that statement we hear today? Yes, I do think one thing I try to make the case for, even as, as far back, at least as Andrew Jackson, again, and some of the ways he gets defined through the self-made man narrative and his dueling and his sort of violence um, as this kind of American icon. Um, I think he is a starting point for that. I think Roosevelt really, in various ways, extends that, at least the narratives of him, the, the frames of his masculinity, his his rugged toughness, that that Western ethos, those kinds of narratives. And that really then becomes a central 20th century form of what I would call mythic patriotism. And it gets really embodied in a phrase I quoted way back at the beginning of this conversation, the love it or leave it kind of phrase, because these colors don't run is one layer to it, the idea of kind of a necessary um, courage. There's no reason that has to be masculine, of course, but it's often connected to particularly mas- masculine icons. But that vision of sort of courage, of, of strength, um, is one layer, but then the layer beneath it is the idea that that brooks no criticism. Again, that any form of criticism then is weak, is unpatriotic, is an attempt to undermine that strength. And the phrase love it or leave it, which I think is a very explicit parallel to these colors don't run, those kind of ideas, is precisely that that duality, that it's either then siding entirely with that strength, that strong celebrated nation, or or being so critical of it that you have no place, that you should leave that place. And so that to me is the biggest problem with those narratives. It's not, again, necessarily strength or the celebration of it, um, which is not limited to any gender or, or any other community, but it is the frame as either or. It is the frame that if you are not 100% backing those ideals, if you are critical of the ways the nation has fallen short of them, rather, you are outside, you are you are antagonistic to. That's how that narrative, I think, develops throughout the 20th century. Your book then gets to World War II. Um, and just as a quick personal story here, one of the first history books that I read um, was um, certainly as a teenager, and I, this was probably in Oh gosh, I was probably 18, 19. Um, I read The Greatest Generation and I remember it made me feel really, really good mm-hmm. about The Greatest Generation. Um, this group of people we now call, or we call The Greatest Generation because they fought World War II and then came up um, and sort of built many of the contours that we lived in for the second half of the 20th century. Um I just want to know, did they call themselves the greatest generation before Tom Brokaw did? 
I don't believe that that exact phrase was used. Um, I think he really, or that 1990s moment that he and others were working in, um, 50 years or so after after that World War II and end of the Depression era, I believe is when that exact phrase was coined. But I would say that there was, as there often is, a bit of a kind of self-creation of some of these, these celebratory and at times mythic patriotisms. And an example of that, a really complicated figure who really embodies that is Joseph McCarthy. Uh, McCarthy um, invented, um, partly played up, but also partly invented um, uh, some of his sort of military record as part of his move into the Senate and then his move into his prominent role in the Senate and the McCarthy hearings. Um, he was a World War II soldier, a vet, um, but he also amplified and at times invented parts of those stories, including an injury that he said he got in battle, which was um, a sustained during a celebration when his ship crossed the equator. Um, and so I think you can see in moments like that, a kind of self-conscious creation of, of a set of myths. Um, which weren't yet called one particular phrase, which had lots of other layers, of course. But but yes, I think that that process was happening. Um, and then it certainly happened in sort of films about the war and, and other kinds of cultural texts. And then it gets cemented a half century later by this, this retroactive kind of vision of it as this category. At what point does it become patriotic to serve your country at war? Um, my suspicion is that it was invented to get popular support for things like a draft. Um, but I don't know. When, you know, it's, I guess sort of today we think of it as like, well, you know, he's serving his country or she's serving her country. Um, she's a patriot. Uh, when does that idea um, start to be cultivated? Yeah, I mean, I think on the one hand, uh, those who who serve and, and write about it express visions of that in really every conflict that I've seen um, and often, especially from communities who might, again, be sometimes excluded. So uh, William Apeshu or Apes, who I mentioned before, serves in the War of 1812 and uh, writes about that as an expression of his connection to the United States as a Native American who is being explicitly removed or, or uh, attempted to be removed. So I think individual voices, maybe especially those who are sometimes excluded, have been making the case for that service all along. The U.S. colored troops during the Civil War absolutely do the same as the advocates for them like Frederick Douglass. But the larger narrative, I would say in some ways really comes to pass um, when wars get particularly controversial. So the Vietnam War is a great example. This is a war in its own moment that is so divisive, that is so contested in whether it is right, necessary, um, illegal, et cetera. And so I think it's, it's telling that the love it or leave it phrase, for example, really uh, comes to be a central phrase in that moment and that love then gets defined through that phrase as, for example, serving, not dodging the draft, not attempting to, to not serve, but, but being part of that war rather than, say, protesting it or criticizing it. So while I think individual voices have made the case for service all along as an active expression of patriotism, I think the broader narrative of support the troops, equaling support the war, equaling loving the nation and being a part of that nation's patriotic expression, it's, it's I would say, Vietnam when we, we see the most full flowering of that narrative. At what point does consumer culture get tied to patriotism? If you drink our beer, um, Budweiser is famous for that. They've got American flags on their cans sometimes. If you drive our truck, um, I'm reminded of, you know, the Chevy Silverado commercials and Ford F-150s. It, it, it's this American strength that you're exuding if you, if you uh, use those products. Coca-Cola, um, 
frequently ties itself to a version of patriotism that has come under attack by some other patriots because they say it's even too um, too uh, all-encompassing. So at what point do advertisers realize they can make a buck if they say using our stuff makes you a good American? Mm-hmm. I think that 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 unfolds across the 20th century. I think you start to see versions of that around World War One, even something like Uncle Sam, which I write about in the World War One chapter, this iconic image that had been around for a long time, but gets cemented as a sort of brand in uh, during World War One um, is a kind of example of this increasing move towards sort of branding of the U.S. The celebratory patriotisms in a way that can then be connected to marketing and promotion in a variety of ways. And then World War II, I would say, is where that really takes off, in part through some very um, important and, and, and shared actions like the victory gardens and rationing and these expressions of sort of how one can serve and be a patriot, even if one is not, say, in the military during that Second World War. But, uh, there, but those, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that these kinds of patriotism um, the ones that you talk about, uh, it's just interesting because holding up a Budweiser, um, it's like they want to make you think it's celebratory. It it seizes on our mythic patriotism. Um, it is trying to make the case Budweiser is that you're being an active patriot by supporting our beer and, and holding up this can when you're out on the beach celebrating. Um, but the critical patriotism is really not a part of that. Um, at least in the way Budweiser has framed it. But then when you have Coca-Cola with the commercial that had, I think they sang the, one of the, uh, I think the Star Spangled Banner in a number of languages, mm-hmm. that became critical patriotism and people became upset at that. Yeah, and I do think it's important to say that, that, that no, that uh, one reason I try to make the case for these four types is to make clear that they, they do coexist, even in the same moments, the same, the same cultural works, the same debates. Um, and so, it would be inaccurate and certainly unproductive to ever associate just one form of patriotism with one part of our society or, or one um, or one type of, of content, type of, of, of media. Instead, I think we often see those contests and absolutely um, you can even see, uh, while there's a capitalistic side and a, and a more cynical side, you can see them play out in these different arenas. You can see how, how corporations and advertising then are navigating the question of, of celebration versus criticism or and criticism for different possibilities. Yeah, I want to ask about September 11th. Um, mm-hmm. That was, you know, maybe the defining moment in my life, certainly as it relates to, you know, how I feel about um, my country and, and about the idea that we were suddenly um, sort of exposed and this bubble had burst, this bubble of safety. Um, and I remember very clearly sitting in my college dorm room, uh, President Bush saying, you're either with us or you're with the terrorists. Mm-hmm. And everyone in the room cheered. Um, what did that moment, what does that moment tell you now about how patriotism changed after September 11th, 2001? It's a great question. And I was um, unhappy to, to not ultimately include a chapter on that early 20th, 21st century moment. I, my last main chapter is the 80s, and then I, I skipped kind of up to the present. So I'm, I'm glad to have the chance to think at least a little bit about that that moment, early 20th, 21st, the early 21st century. And I think I think two things at once, or multiple things, but I'll say two things. One is there is value. Again, I want to be clear that I'm not trying to downplay the value of what shared experience, particularly shared experience of, of traumatic, difficult um, histories, 
can mean for a community's ability, a nation's ability, our ability to, to find ways to come together. Um, and while that phrasing, which I'll get to in a second, I, 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 I think is too mythic in terms of the way it dismisses criticism, the phrasing of Bush's, I think the larger idea that in response to a trauma, in response to a, a, an act of violence, a, a horrific moment, that the nation can find ways to celebrate the best of us. Not, not to celebrate to me then just a strong military response or the like, but to say there is a we and that we can't be destroyed, that we has to endure um, and we can express that, we can share that. Um, and even if it means you know flying a flag, that can be an expression of that collective, of that solidarity, that communal spirit. And I think there's value in that. But again, as it so often does, it lent itself very easily to the mythic patriotism where A, um, any criticism then of, of say, different actions the government was taking in the aftermath of that event that folded into narratives of treason or unpatriotic uh, uh, actions, fifth column narratives about journalists who were doing their job as journalists, that sort of thing. But B, and even more destructively, American communities get defined as un-American in moments like that. And we saw that with Muslim Americans so fully after September 11th. And I've seen again in the last few years with the Muslim American community, among many others. And that, to me, has no place in that collective solidarity. And if that collective we, that collective solidarity has to exclude A, those who would be critical of the nation to help advance it, and B, communities that are part of the nation, then it's not ultimately unifying at all. It's ultimately more divisive than it is collective. You say that um, you say that President Trump thrives on what you call celebratory patriotism more than any other president. Um, just in my role in my life as a TV news reporter, um, I've seen hundreds and hundreds of political speeches. Um, uh, I've never seen anyone actually physically hug a flag <laughs> until I saw President Trump do that. Um, so uh, is that done in other countries? And what message is he sending to supporters and detractors when he actually walks over to a flag and hugs it and gives it a bear hug? Uh, my instinct, and I'm an Americanist, so when I speak about other countries, it's always uh, deferring to those who are both from them and, and study them. But my instinct is it is done most consistently by authoritarians, by, say, a Kim Jong-un in North Korea or, or past authoritarians, a Mussolini in Italy, who, who sort of define the nation as themselves, define themselves as the nation, the state it is, it is I. And, and I think the hug is partly an expression of that. It's saying, if you love this one thing, you love me. The two are inseparable. We are, we are, we are one icon. Um, I think th that version of celebratory patriotism is an attempt to wed this individual and this administration, et cetera, to those images of the nation, those celebrated images of the nation so fully that it becomes very difficult one without again being seen as criticizing the other or treasonous or unpatriotic. And so I think the message is partly that, but I, I would also say, as I try to make the case in that conclusion, that by also embracing so fully a white supremacist vision, we've seen that just in recent days with Trump's criticisms of the 1619 Project, for example, and he said literally, when we were growing up, we were taught a different history. That's a white supremacist we. That's a we that is saying there's one vision of America that that is the one to be celebrated. And other expressions are un-American or outside of that shared we. And I do think he's doing that as well. He's, he's giving those who support him the freedom to make plain that connection, not just to make plain a love of their country, which again, we all can share, 
and a love of him as a representation of that country, which we, we all don't share, but also to make plain an association of that country with a particular mythic vision of who we are, of our identity, and, and that if you're outside of that, you likewise are not quite American. So, <laughs> 45 minutes on here, how do we decide who is a patriot and who isn't? Um, and I would, I guess, one B to that question or one A to that question is, would a distinction of healthy patriotism versus unhealthy patriotism be helpful? But first, that first question, how do we decide who is a patriot and who isn't? And do we have to decide that? No, I don't think we do. I think that it's really important for me, and, and I talk about figures and communities all the time in this project, but to think about the expressions and the representations as the focus rather than defining people as one or the other, as, as say a patriot or not, or which even then leads to unpatriotic or treasonous. Obviously, there can be literal acts of, of treason in like a legal way, a constitutional way. But when it comes to patriotism, to me, it is important to think about it as the idea of how it is expressed by individuals and communities and the whole nation, rather than trying to, to categorize people as one or the other, because everyone can express it in then to follow up with your second great question, absolutely everyone can express it in both less and more helpful ways, productive ways, ways that, that unite versus ways that divide. That's the question I would really want to look at is how is it being expressed? And then what do those expressions do? What do they mean? How do they affect us? How do they contribute to either, for example, division or unity? I think if I was ultimately going to make the case for critical patriotism, one way I would do it is that it is seen as divisive. It's very frequently seen as divisive. But to me, it's the opposite. To me, it is the mythic celebration that divides Americans from each other because some folks are part of it and some are not. Critical patriotism is the idea that we all have a responsibility to help push the nation toward its best version of itself and that that is what unifies, that is what links us. And the great James Baldwin quote that I use as my epigraph, I love America more than any other country in the world and it is precisely for that reason that I insist upon the right to criticize. That's, a, that's an American trait that he is arguing there, I believe, that we all have to try. But to me, critical patriotism is a unifying form that we all can participate in. And too often, the mythic version is about dividing Americans from each other and defining those who are and are not. So I think it's about expression, and it absolutely is about trying to figure out which expression and help push us forward together and which are ultimately more about dividing us from each other. As we are out and about, um how should we react? Um, and let's talk about, you know, we're online, we're out in the street, we're, we're at a July 4th celebration, we're at a baseball game. Um, how should we react when someone's demonstration of patriotism does not jive with our own? Now, I'm not talking about what should we say to that person, because that's like a weirdly, like people have that instinct. What should we say to ourselves when people have a version of patriotism that we just don't agree with? It's a really, really good question. And I agree that it's important to do it in a self-reflective way. And then perhaps to think about how to make the case for one's own version, not in that moment to one individual, but in sort of our own lives and our own actions. And I would say then, yeah, two things. One is that it is precisely in those moments that we can better reflect, that we can better think actively about, okay, well, how do I see my role as a, as a citizen, as a person in this country, as an American, why do I feel that way? And, and how do I interrogate that? 
analyze that, not just take that for granted. I think too often we take the rituals for granted, as we said about songs long ago in this conversation. And the more we can be reflective and, and thoughtful, then, then the more we can put those into play as we act in our own lives. So that's one thing I think is to take that step back and reflect, maybe especially when we are bothered or put off. Um, and then the second step, and I do think it's a really important one too, is to try as best we can. Empathy is such an important concept to me to think about why is someone taking that step? And so I go to Kaepernick, who I talk about in both my beginning and closing sections a bit. I think his, his what I call critical patriotic protest got so and has continued to be so misinterpreted, um, portrayed in, in a light that he never himself articulated or advocated for. Um, and I think that's at least partly a lack of empathy with what he was doing and why. And, and so I think as much as we're about self-reflection, we also have to be able to think more genuinely and thoughtfully about why are these other actions being taken? And, and then if we come to a place where we feel, okay, you know what, that action was ultimately, as I thought about it further, still divisive or destructive, then we think about how we challenge it, about how we argue something different, not in the moment that person, but overall in our lives and our words. But I think too often we take for granted both our own rituals and what others are doing. And if we're not thoughtful about them, then we're not able to have these conversations. Dr. Benjamin Railton, the author of Of The I Sing, The Contested History of American Patriotism. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Evan. It was a great conversation. I can't wait to share the book with you. Certainly check out the book and his social media page on Twitter. He's at American Studier. And I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. It's patreon.com slash History. We do not accept contributions over $5 and any monthly amount we raise over $31, which is the exact cost to produce the show is given to a charity that promotes literacy and helps children's education. And thank you for listening to Axel Bank Reports, History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Be sure to check us out on Twitter and Instagram at Axel Bank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Thanks.